Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, a host on the network, and today we're really fortunate to be joined by Nathan Rochelle DeFord, assistant professor at the University of Hartford. Professor DeFord is a philosopher working at the intersections of social and political philosophy, Frankfurt School critical theory, feminist thought, and has written historical articles on Adorno and Horkheimer's work. Today, we're going to discuss the professor's first book, Solidarity and Conflict, A Democratic Theory, published this year by Stanford University Press. Professor DeFord, Nat, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about your new book. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Nat, finally nice to talk. I really appreciate you making the time for this. Let me start uh, by asking you to share a bit about how you came to study philosophy and the genesis of your new book. Well, I came to study philosophy because I was raised in a very sort of conservative and religious household. And I had a lot of questions about the world that I felt like the people around me weren't um, very interested in answering or maybe didn't give me satisfying answers to. And as I got older, like in high school and undergrad, I learned that a lot of people had had these sorts of questions in the past, and for the most part, we called them philosophers. So I got interested in philosophy to sort of answer to the wonders that I felt like the world contained. And I've always been interested in politics. So from a young uh, age, I've always taken an interest in it. And so my new book, Solidarity and Conflict, is sort of about how we live out politics and how we can make theoretical sense of that uh, sort of arena of our lives. In your book's acknowledgments, uh, you mentioned the support and advice of Max Pensky uh, in your intellectual development. Are you, are you comfortable sharing a little of what he meant to you and how, as you put it, he allowed you to follow your considerably weird interests? So Max Pensky was my doctoral supervisor. He is a uh, critical theorist also. He works on um, Benjamin, Adorno, and Habermas. And he has sort of always been a big supporter of mine. My doctoral thesis, my dissertation was on world government. So it was an argument in favor of world government. And that's sort of an unusual topic for someone to pick up. And as soon as I proposed it, he immediately was on board and was like, yeah, let's do this. You can write about basically anything you want. And that kind of support really helped me to see that uh, I could really just follow my interests as a philosopher. And that was good enough. I didn't have to have like a specific research program that fit with what people expected of a political philosopher. Hey, you reference uh, Pensky's 2009 book, The Ends of Solidarity, Discourse Theory in Ethics and Politics. And in his first chapter, he observes that, and I quote, of all the concepts that form the constellation of modern political thought, surely solidarity is a strong candidate for the most challenging. At once influential and under-theorized, the concept of solidarity appears to function across a startling range of discourses. I, I realize these are not your words, but thinking your thoughts on his point in terms of your work uh, might be helpful in terms of uh, framing our discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that he gets really right here is that solidarity really is one of the most challenging concepts in contemporary politics, I think. We don't do a lot of thinking about what it is or about what it does, but at once it seems like so essential to understanding what it is that any of us are doing, organizing ourselves politically. And you can sort of look around and see ordinary people talking about being in solidarity all the time. 
But academically, we've sort of given it up in favor of thinking about like theories of freedom or theories of equality, which comparatively, there's so many more and they seem so much less difficult to actually figure out what those concepts do for us politically. Yeah, that's interesting. And is it a problem then, given the way that people categorize things like solidarity? For instance, uh, solidarity gets put into the category of being, um, say, a moral theory. Is that right? I mean, are, are you you've got something to say about that? I, mean. <laughs> I do. I have a lot to say about it. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. So I don't I'm not like invested in getting people to stop calling it a, an obligation morally. But I do think that that has caused us to miss the politics of it. Very few people are thinking about solidarity in terms of what it does politically, instead of thinking about it in terms of like, what are my individual moral obligations to other people who have been dominated or who have been oppressed? Um, and when we do that, we sort of miss solidarity as a central organizing feature of our lives. And the way that historically, at least in theory, it was meant to be one of the main ways we sort of come together with each other. In the introduction, you point out uh, that your book is about the kinds of democratic life that can be built when people struggle together. And, and it's guided uh, by an orientation toward an understanding of collective organizing, individual transformation, and the role of democracy in our everyday lives. Um, two related questions you begin with are, how did democracy become disentangled from our ordinary lives? and become something that's done only at ballot boxes. And and the second one is, is this related to the way that contemporary democratic theory shed its historical association uh, with social theory, w which is interesting. Uh, can you uh, set the opening context here for listeners? Well, what do you feel is, is at stake here? You, you open in the book uh, with mention of insurrection summer uh, 2020 and, and January 6th. Can you share some of your thoughts on, on how you frame things to start the book? Yeah, so I framed things with the book. One of the sort of ways that I approached writing this book was to say, let's look at how people actually have experienced this concept in their everyday lives. Because it turns out there are lots and lots of um, memoirs, biographies, like depictions of people who have been in solidarity with each other and what that meant to them. And so the main thing I wanted to do sort of as a theoretical orientation was to stop looking at democracy as this abstract proceduralism that says, okay, well, if everything goes right in terms of how something can be politically organized, that's democracy. Like that's a legitimate democracy or something like that. Mm. And instead, I wanted to say, well, what is it for a democratic subject? What's democracy for that person? And so I think a lot of people do think about their democratic responsibility as like basically just voting um, and everything else comes to be seen as like moral or uh, sort of being a good person, sort of going above and beyond what's expected of you. And so I wanted to frame these two events, right, this January 6th sort of attempted insurrection and the series of like very high profile uh, revolts in the summer of 2020 as saying like, actually, this is how people can do politics too. And, and what can pop out of a theory if we look at that instead of looking at these abstract procedural questions about what type of voting system we should have. Yeah, but that's scary stuff. We have people in the streets. Oh, yeah, it's terrifying, right? And and part of the reason that I framed it using both of these events is that we also are put into this position where we have to choose sides, right? Mm. <laughs> um, you have to look at those events and say, okay, is all all the time? Is it bad when someone's out in the street? Uh, what does it mean to make a political judgment about revolt rather than just looking at this and saying, well, 
um, people on the streets protesting the extrajudicial murder, like systematic extrajudicial killings of Black Americans are the same as people trying to overthrow an election. Like that is really unsatisfying. But I think that that is a tendency that happens, at least in the media and among some um, like liberal thinkers in some way. You bring up, I think, at some point, the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, kind of vigilante response to things. And I only mention it because the scary part of that, that it's not an instance of solidarity with what's going on uh, in the media. But but certainly there's something going on in uh, Rittenhouse's mind uh, with regard to why he would get in a car uh, with an automatic weapon and drive so far to uh, to confront people. Yeah, I mean, and Rittenhouse seemed to depict his own actions as a kind of solidarity, right? This is one of the things that I really didn't want to shy away from, is that domination and the agents who enact it, those are things that people organize. They work together and they help each other to accomplish those kinds of goals. And so when we think about what like a just or a non-dominative world would look like, we are making a huge mistake when we don't think, okay, people are in solidarity to try to fight against it as much as people are in solidarity to try to fight for it. We sort of miss this whole arena of political action and agency in people who are organized to develop a more dominative world rather than a more just one. Well, as you point out, basically, well, one of the things your book is a study in democratic theory that's primarily focused on the role of non-domination and for fostering a society in which mediation, as you say, does not drive alienation. Can you unpack the importance of these points in terms of your theory? Sure. So I think that one of the things that happens when we think about how a society should be organized is that we look at it and say, well, somebody's got to be dominated in order for society to operate smoothly to some degree or another. Or we think like, society just is alienating. Of course, when we all get together, we don't all fit together in this like clean way where we're all accepted by everyone else for everything about us. But it seems to me that one of the tasks of democratic life is to generate that kind of integration. So if you are a member of a political organization that is, say, like, trying to organize to help uh, people get abortions if they're in states where it's illegal. It's entirely possible that there will be disagreements in that group about what that group should be doing and who that group should be helping and how. And that's going to require some kind of mediation, right? But the mediation doesn't have to just be, well, you disagree, so you have to go. It can also be a series of reflections about the group and maybe whether the group has missed something or has left out an important consideration rather than just, okay, well, we don't need you here. It, that sounds good. And but, but we've got this, <laughs> right? We have this kind of polarized uh, situation and, and I and I almost don't even want to use that word anymore. I've, I've been hearing it for so long. How, how do we overcome that in terms of being able to implement those kinds of things? I mean, I know that maybe this isn't a very satisfying answer, but I think that first of all, not everyone needs to be in solidarity groups with everyone else, right? So mm. if uh, you're a member. One of the examples I use in the book is a like feminist organization that the, a, a fictive. I invent this example uh, of a feminist organization in a workplace trying to figure out how to address like the harm to women in their workplace. And you could imagine that the group sort of can't agree on whether they should start a union or not, whether unionization would benefit women in that workplace. It strikes me as entirely possible that the people who think that it it would 
should just do their own thing and try to start a union, <laughs> try to unionize their right. workplace. And the people who don't can do the other things that they think are valuable and beneficial for women in the workplace, right? Uh, it just seems to me that there's no good reason to believe we all have to work with each other on everything all the time, just because in the abstract, we happen to share some value, like the workplace should be better to the women in it. Yeah, that's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your introduction provides the conceptual, as we say, lay of the land. And and you have a section titled uh, Failed Concepts of Solidarity. And that's followed by another one, Three Operative Concepts. And, and this in turn is divided into solidarity, democracy and conflict. You share some key starting points and influences there. And there's a lot of foundation for readers. Uh, but what's important from a listener's standpoint in terms of gaining an understanding of the direction of your theorizing from these introductory sections? And I realize we've been kind of working our way around it already. Yeah, yeah, we have. So what I'm trying to do here is to lay out three basic ideas that are that sort of animate the entire text. So when I talk about solidarity, what I'm talking about are the way that people work together to fashion a world after their own goals or values, right? So these are groups that people join in order to create some kind of specific vision for what our world should look like. Most of the time when other people write about concepts of solidarity, the reason I talk about failed ones is that they build in some kind of criteria that the group has to be working toward justice or something like that. And like I said, I think that this just really misses how it is that we organize ourselves in the world and what it is that we do. So when I talk about solidarity, one of the things that I want to use the term democracy to do is to help us separate out solidarity worth being in and solidarity that on my account isn't worth being in. So I divide solidarity up into types of solidarity that further democratic life and types of solidarity that inhibit it. And I make that distinction based on how well solidarity groups can withstand internal conflict. So solidarity groups that are pretty good at dealing with internal challenge tend to be ones that forward more democratic life. So you can imagine the sort of classic example of this is the way that sort of you could imagine a white feminist organization being challenged on the members' racism or their failure to take seriously the concerns of black women uh, in their community. That is a conflict that furthers the democratic goal of a society and that shows that the solidarity group itself is worth being a part of, right? That having that conflict can change the members for the better and can change their goals in the society for the better. Do you feel like this is a, com a comparative political systems thing where, hey, this is the kind of thing that could happen in an authoritarian system and it could happen in a, a more, cap, well, a democratic system. It, do, do you feel like there's an extension to this? Yeah. So that is one of the ways that I try to think about what a worthwhile solidarity would be, is to say, if if you're interested in democracy, right, so it's a kind of hypothetical imperative, then you should be really worried about the kinds of authoritarian tendencies that spring up when you don't allow for people to have internal conflicts with each other. Like, it generates the possibility that we're just making decisions for other people and enforcing them, rather than actually engaging in a political process together, where we're trying to figure out as a group what we all agree we should do, who we should include, and what kinds of tactics we should take. Uh, do you mind sharing more of your thinking about radical democracy in your writing and the and the role of conflict and contestation? I was just thinking about examples of solidaristic organizations. For instance, do you feel like, say, the Catholic Church is a solidarity enhancing organization versus or not versus, but in comparison to, say, Black Lives Matter? Is that a fair <laughs> yeah, that's a very fair question. I mean, the 
Catholic Church has historically had, Catholicism itself has historically had a long tradition of theorizing solidarity um, speci and specifically like the practice of solidarity with the impoverished. So it's it's not, in my opinion, wrong to say that on the one hand that some members are practicing this kind of radical um, justice-oriented solidarity, but you can also look at the Catholic Church as an overarching organization and, for instance, look at the way that they have protected uh, members of the clergy who have engaged in um, like decades of sexual assaults. That also is solidarity. This kind of protection of your members is a form of being in solidarity with each other. It's just, to my mind, not a worthwhile one. You shouldn't want to be the person or the organization in solidarity with and protecting people who are serial assaulters, right? And so the way that I sort of think about that as different from Black Lives Matter, for instance, is that Black Lives Matter is focused on questions of building a more just world and eliminating the forms of domination that make it impossible for Black people, specifically in the United States, to have flourishing lives. When the Catholic mm, Church sure. acts that way, right, sometimes they do, like sometimes members do act in that way, then maybe it's something worth supporting. But to the extent that it acts in the other ways, it's not. No. Um, well, and, and I'm thinking also, hey, where does loyalty come into the solidarity issue? In other words, the solidarity seems like a almost like a Sopranos kind of loyalty <laughs> issue, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, the ways that I tend to think about solidarity, at least, I didn't write about this in the book, but after I finished the book, I started doing some work on racketeering and um, the mafia as a form of solidarity and sort of thinking mm. this, it comes from a, an essay that Horkheimer wrote uh, called Rackets and the Spirit. And it does seem that there is this kind of originary way that social organization takes on this form of uh, threatening danger and then promising protection from its own danger right? And the police are a really perfect example of that, right? That the police threaten all of this danger and then turn around and say, oh, actually, we're the protective force. And I think that thinking about that as solidarity makes a lot of sense. I, I guess there's some sort of idealized uh, version of that. But let me back off from that. You, you make a point uh, about distinguishing your work from those upon whom your theorizing is based. And you mentioned Wolin and Loomis and Mouffe and uh, Laclau, uh, Honing, Simmel, Schmidt. And, and I don't expect you to cover them all, but can you talk a bit about how you build on and differentiate your own analysis just to kind of, I guess, get us back to basically how you support your arguments uh, in the book, which is uh, really good, I think. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So the, the book is a book of uh, radical democracy. I'm not, and, and that's sort of what I mean when I say that I'm not interested in the kind of abstract procedural questions. So it takes on board the way that a lot of these figures that you listed assume that the world we live in contains an irreducible pluralism. We will always have stuff to fight with each other about, and that's not going to go away. So there, it just sort of takes as a given that we are not ever going to reach a point where we won't need to have conflicts over political questions. The way that I differentiate myself from a number of these figures is that they either think that conflict is just part of what it means to be a human being or part of human nature. And I sort of work to build a theory that says, actually, we don't need to figure out where the conflict came from. We just need to recognize that we live in a world where it exists and it's not going away. So I don't want to like idealize it and say, oh, conflict is great. Conflict is so good because actually like conflict a lot of the times can be really um, counterproductive and can be very damaging. So a lot of people worry about 
the role that conflict plays in like solidarity groups or in a democratic society. And it's like, yeah, it does have this kind of dual tendency where it can sort of further our goals. It can bring us together on something, but it can also get in the way of us achieving our goals or doing anything at all, really. Yeah, good point. That brings up, you You authored an essay uh, recently for the Australian publication Aeon. It was titled, A Democracy Entails Conflict. And the subtitle was, Democracy is a System of Politics That Has Disagreement at Its Heart. And, and then you ask the question, but how do we stop conflicts becoming destructive? Um, it's a thoughtful article and led me to read your book, Solidarity and Conflict, which I think we will show uh, deserves the time and effort of interested listeners to really come to terms with your broader thesis, uh, which you share in part with Habermas. And I quote, that society is built by a conflict. And and again, I'm not trying to overstate that. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, your essay article uh, starts with an interesting opening concept, uh, the left's circular firing squad. Why'd you open with that? And you mentioned the political philosopher Robert Talese's book, Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. Can you unpack some of your reasoning there and how it relates to your political ideals for democratic life? Sure. So I think that anyone has who has been involved in any kind of leftist organizing has faced some kind of example of people talking about how um, leftists just can't stop attacking each other. Sometimes it's called a circular firing squad, right, where we're all just shooting at each other instead of the actual targets of harm, um, or that it's a kind of eating yourself alive. I use that metaphor in the book that uh, sure. people think of conflict as eating ourselves alive. And one of the things that I think is so, like, descriptive about these kinds of metaphors, I guess, is that they don't help us to distinguish what conflict can be good for from what it can be bad for. Like when you when people talk about the left's circular firing squad, you don't hear people talk about the right's circular firing squad, right? <laughs> and so it's like, what is it about leftist politics that leads to this kind of behavior where we fight with each other all the time? And I actually think that it is that we oftentimes have more democratic commitments, that we think it's valuable to disagree with each other, that we think we can learn things through that kind of disagreement, and that we shouldn't be powering over each other, right? That we, it isn't our place to enact power over our peers in some way. And so I think all of these questions about how too much democracy leads to conflict. It's like, well, yeah, of course, that's what democracy is. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And uh, society is built by a conflict. But in both your book and the Aeon article, you also mentioned uh, one of the founders of Dissent Magazine, the sociologist, uh, Louis Kozer. He differentiated between uh, two types of conflict, as you point out, realistic and non-realistic can, can you share with listeners how the distinction is useful? So uh, when we think about sort of the damaging stuff about conflict and the conflicts that we should be worried about, one of the things that I think people often have in mind is just like irrational quarrelsomeness, like name calling or the kinds mm -hmm. of like trolling that you see on Twitter, like um, at one point. I, most people probably don't pay this much attention to Twitter, but at one point, lots of people were sending Elizabeth Warren snake emojis. Um, I can't remember the precipitating event, uh, but I think the implication was that she was a liar or a snake in some way, obviously. Um, but that kind of conflict doesn't actually produce anything except psychological satisfaction. And so um, Koser thinks about it as this kind of drive to just like, annihilate or expel or attack uh, people in order to get psychological satisfaction out of it. And so I try to work really hard in the book to say, okay, that impulse, that's actually the authoritarian impulse toward conflict, is to expel difference, get rid of it, get the psychological satisfaction of the conflict. Whereas there's also a democratic 
way of thinking about difference, which is this more like realistic way, which is conflicts over things that actually matter. Right. If I'm a member of a feminist organization, it actually really matters how that organization thinks about race. Like that's not a question that's just uh, for my own psychological satisfaction. I'm not just trying to win. I'm trying to get my peers to have a more right or a less dominative way of understanding the world vis-a-vis -vis race. And so it seems to me that the, the difference is really useful for talking about conflicts that we should be valuing and conflicts that we should be trying to get rid of. In most cases, I think what's really worrisome about the difference between realistic, right, productive democratic conflicts and non-realistic, these kind of psychological authoritarian ones, is that they get run together by media figures often who then we get to just sweep all the conflict out and say, oh, well, it's all just psychology. It's all just people acting out. And we really miss a lot when we do that. For that matter, uh, as you know, uh, Kozer had observed in his uh, functions of social conflict in 1956 that conflict functioned positively. And to some sociologists, it functioned as a key category of explanation in the analysis of change and progress. Is Koser's work more broadly relevant to your theory building on solidarity and democracy? In a way, yes. Right. Uh, the book takes as a sort of central organizing feature that conflict is a way of enacting change. And that happens both inside of solidarity groups. Right. So we'll have a conflict within a group because we disagree about something. And that not only will change maybe the goal of the group, the membership, its values or its tactics, it'll also change the members of the group, right? So it can be a way that we change each other, a way of learning, changing and sort of modifying ourselves over time. But social uh, solidarity organizations also agitate conflict in the broader society where they're situated in order to bring about social change. It's sort of hard to imagine social change happening without any conflict whatsoever. It's like, well, what what are we really changing then, <laughs> right? If mm. if there's been no disagreement, what has changed? I think that I'm wary of using the idea of progress, and there's sort of a uncomfortable way that the the concept of quote unquote progress fits here in a kind of in the sense that the concept often functions for a kind of narrative about the goal of what it is to be human or the goal of what it is to be on this planet that I don't necessarily think is very helpful for guiding us and often is really harmful and covers over some really damaging things like colonization, for example. So what about something more, say some empirical kind of a look at life expectancy or something like that, that, okay, look, 200 years ago, the average life expectancy of a child born was about uh, 30 years. And, and today it, it's more like 70 years. Is that progress or is that kind of a, a that, that's putting it into a category like, oh, this is human lifespan progress or something? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly it has changed. Right. And if you think that living longer is better then it has changed for the better. But I think putting it on this idea of progress implies that there's some kind of end goal of what it is for us to be here. And that mm. what we're all working together toward or against is for or against that end goal. When in fact, positing what that end goal would be is a matter of great disagreement. And so it's hard to look at it and say, ah, yes, well, we all know that it would be better if human beings lived longer or something like that. Uh, mm. Because it's not obvious that it would be better if we all lived longer. Lots of people will disagree. And lots of those reasons for disagreement will in fact be ones that like a person invested in a just society wouldn't want to agree with <laughs> necessarily, right? You can come up with lots of very sort of colonial minded reasons for why it's not better for certain classes of people to live longer, for example. Yeah. Okay. Sure. It's a point there. Given the synthesis necessary to link 
uh, together a literature on solidarity and across these various topics and formats. Can, can you share how you chose to make sense of it and, and some of the contemporary theories of solidarity that have informed your book, in addition to the ideas and scholarship of uh, Max Pensky and, and others uh, with whom you've already shared? Sure. So the book really is kind of expansive, I think, in terms of the literature sets that it looks at, because mm. there's no one way of writing about solidarity that I could pull on. Unlike a lot of sort of theoretical concepts, the literature on solidarity happens at, sort of all over the place. People are interested in solidarity as like just a conceptual thing. They're interested in actually existing social movements. They're interested in um, legal questions about the repayments of debts or legal questions about the organization of um, a constitutional state, for instance. There's a lot of solidarity literature invested in that kind of thing. And so what I tried to do was to synthesize and sort of pull on all of these different threads of where solidarity comes up in mm. order to generate a cohesive theory that's like, okay, on its most general basis, without taking on board, without asking a reader to take on board some complex moral scheme, sure. what are we trying to do when we talk about solidarity? We're trying to talk about how people organize themselves into groups and how those groups enact things in the world. Yeah. which seems hopelessly vague. But once you start looking at the literature, it's like that seems to be the only sort of joining feature of a lot of it. So then the loyalty issue gets overlaid on top of that in some way. Yeah, I think that's right. So the loyalty question really has to do more with ethical considerations of what we sort of owe to each other rather than um, political questions about what we can do if we work together. Well, and you know, you lay a lot of this out in the first chapter, uh, which I like the title, A Solidarity in Neoliberal Times. And and while it seems a little late uh, to be asking you this, uh, it will, in addition to the fact that you've probably already sketched out some of this already, I, I still want to ask, what do you mean when you refer to critical theory? So, as noted, I'm I'm a critical theorist. I work in this tradition of critical theory. And for me, most of the time when I use that term, I'm referring to a uh, historical intellectual tradition um, surrounding the work of what some people will call the Frankfurt School or a group of sort of German philosophers, sociologists, um, analysts, working at the Institute for Social Research in sort of the mid 20th century. So this is a branch of thought that self-consciously combined philosophy, like philosophical method with the social sciences. Um, and so that kind of synthesis to say, let's use both the way that philosophy does abstract investigation with the empirical information and guide the empirical information or acquisition from the social sciences together. You reference Adorno's paper on progress. Uh, do you think like some philosophers uh, say, for instance, Hanif, that critical theory needs an idea of progress for it to be authentic? Um, I, I mean, uh, truly critical. Um, I mean, that's such a hard question. I don't think, I think that some idea of what we're aiming for is necessary, but there's a huge baggage on the question of progress that, um, at least like in this format, I don't know that I could really cash out. I really liked, mm -hmm. um, Amy Allen wrote a book about this called The End of Progress on sort of the idea yeah. of progress in critical theory. And I think that the way that she thinks about thinking of an ideal, but not necessarily as a combined sort of world historical goal, has guided a lot of my thinking on that question. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'm not trying to pin you down on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me ask you, though, um, how, how does the issue uh, of the origin of social recognition figure into things? Because you mentioned Hegel and Haneth, among others. 
Can you contextualize this a bit in terms of its importance in your first chapter? Sure. The The idea of social recognition, I think, at least at this point, a lot of times that goes under the term identity politics in contemporary sort of mass culture and debates. And really what we're talking about here is seeing people as valuable in who they are, right? At least mm -hmm. that's sort of what Honnet means by it, right? This way of being seen and understood as having something valuable and unique to contribute to a social organization. And for Honnet, being seen in that way and having everyone seen in that way just is solidarity. That once we've achieved that, then we've we live in solidarity. So for him, solidarity is this kind of ideal toward which all of our politics and social organization should be working. And as a matter of fact, it seems like a lot of solidarity groups are working for that kind of um, seeing and being seen as who they are. Uh, which fits nicely into your thesis. Um, you, you developed the argument that society requires individual change, which is part of as you say, being in solidarity, which is essentially a work in process, so to speak, further developed uh, by the conceptual themes of your second chapter, two models of non-exclusion, conflict in feminist and democratic theory. You may have to recontextualize some ground already covered, but can you talk to us about your development of the dual view of solidarity organizations and the role of conflict in it? Absolutely. This, to me, sort of sets the stage for everything else that I was really interested in doing, which is instead a, a lot of ways of thinking, sort of academic ways of thinking about solidarity, only see solidarity groups by what they do in the broader society, in their sort of enacting of conflict, right, when people take on a protest or a direct action or they publicize their goals or something like that, that's sort of the dominant way that we seem to interact with solidarity groups. But solidarity groups also have these internal relationships. And so this chapter really tries to look at the fact that solidarity groups do two things at once, right? They act in the broader society, which they sort of agitate conflicts in, but they also act internally in this kind of democratic, inclusive way to try to bring people into the organization. And this is like one of the really hard problems that solidarity groups face is on the one hand, they need to oppose the features of society that are damaging to them and work toward changing those features of the society. And on the other, they need to bring more people into the solidarity group in order to accomplish those things. And so they're in this kind of really hard position where they have to at once oppose a society and make it appealing to do so. <laughs> um, and so I really wanted to look at solidarity groups on both of those registers and say both this integration that solidarity can do and the conflict that solidarity can generate, those are both as much part of solidarity as the other. Nice. You move on from there. Your third chapter, it, it really is engaging. And um, I suggest, well, no, look, the whole book needs to be read. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it's an engaging third chapter. Uh, the title is Antisocial Solidarities, the Psychic Life of Domination. Um, what's most important for listeners to know about your line of reasoning here? And can you unpack some of your psychoanalytic framework about identity? What is an antisocial solidarity and how does the concept fit into your broader theory? You, you've, you've touched on this a bit. Yeah, I talked a little bit about this. And, and this chapter really is kind of the crowning achievement of one of the things I wanted to do in the book, was, which was, as I said, to look at solidarity groups that I wouldn't want to be a part of, right? What does it mean to think about the KKK as a solidarity organization? Because it strikes me that they really are, right? These are people who are organizing to create political change, to fashion a world after their goals, after their values, and to really implement a certain vision of what 
the human being should be and what our social and political lives should be like. So what I try to do here is to set up an understanding through a question of loss. So the psychoanalytic question of loss as a way that we come to see identity and sort of construct identity. So what is it that drives someone to join the KKK? Because it seems pretty clear to me what jo like drives someone to join uh, their local like Black Lives Matter group, <laughs> um, which is that you know they actually want to be able to live freely and flourishingly in a society, or they want uh, their Black neighbors to be able to do so. And so it's like, okay, well, what kind of desire drives someone to join the KKK? And I think that the, the desire that drives them is actually pretty similar, but it's based on this kind of basic mistake about um, what it is to be a person, right? So they construct an identity that is based on having an object to dominate. And then they look around at contemporary society and say, everywhere I look, all my objects of domination are being taken away, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I can't be racist anymore. I can't be homophobic anymore. I can't be a misogynist anymore. Um, and when you look around and you see that, it's like, okay, well, these are people sort of desperately grasping for a way of reconstructing a coherent identity. And they have to do that with each other, right? So a lot of the literature that's produced by these groups is about how good their identities are, right? So like how good it is, for instance, to be a, a Christian straight white man in our society and giving them value for that identity. But it turns out in order to actually enact that in the world, you have to do all this stuff that sort of undermines the social fabric. <laughs> And um, that's one way that you can see the difference, I think, between these kinds of groups that are organized for domination and groups that are organized toward liberation is the ones organized toward domination are really about like individual benefit. And that sort of undermines at some point their solidarity gets undermined by that because they're more interested in generating this kind of individual domination that they can cling to. Yeah, yeah, good one. Uh, well, can you apply this uh, framework in relation to the recent uh, Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, in, in Texas, where both current Hungarian President Viktor Orban and former U.S. President uh, Donald Trump both addressed CPAC members? Does your framework uh, apply to the solidarity manifest in that particular venue is it is it even fair for me to position it in this way <laughs> right that, that is uh, <laughs> orban orban actually has the power to implement policy in hungary so is trump channeling those real policy possibilities in europe to create the psychic conditions for conservatives to identify and feel the possibility of a similar set of feelings that exclude and dominate. The, the notion of, of being in solidarity with something bigger than themselves. Does this line of questioning do any justice uh, uh, to your analysis? Yeah, I think it really does. And, and the example of Trump and Orban, I think is a good one because Trump doesn't need to have formal political power in the United States anymore in order to sort of generate what I would call political results. So it's not a surprise, I would say, that Orban, one of the ways that he sort of came to reactionary fame was the sorts of decisions he made about, quote unquote, gender ideology, right? Um, closing gender studies majors, forcing universities to leave the country in order to maintain these kinds of programs. And now you can see sort of the um, American Republican movement toward the exact same thing, both of which are very focused on questions of LGBTQ exclusion and specifically uh, the exclusion and elimination of trans people and access to medical care for trans people. So whether there's sort of a formal political power there for Trump or not, you can see the mobilization of groups of people who get their coherence together through their desire to exclude and dominate. 
in this like exactly parallel kind of way. This uh, this need to be dominant um, is related uh, to the urge that you document, uh, as as you say, to join anti-social solidarity organizations. And there's a, there's a critical connection that you lay out in terms of the paradoxical nature of how social forces that bind societies in turn have a role in the very erosion of society's required elements. Um, what's at work here in addition to the social, anti-social dialectic you explain in your fourth chapter titled Burdened Action, the Social Formation of Solidarity? It's another engaging chapter and it's here that you build your argument around organized labor. Yeah, so it's actually very interesting. One of the things that I uncovered in doing research for the book was that there's very little philosophy written about solidarity and organized labor. It is totally ignored almost. And you would think that it would be like a central question (laughs) uh, for solidarity is to say, okay, well, unionization is this historic example of solidarity. It's what most people think of when they think of it. And so one of the things that I wanted to look at here was to say, what is it that pushes us together? And the fact of the matter is, I think, that the way that solidarity gets formed in either case is because we live in a world that is sort of bad and damaging, right? The need to generate unions comes from living and working in a society where people are exploited by economic systems. And in many ways, they're exploited to such an extent that they can't live minimally decent lives. And so it's hard for me to look at that and say, well, solidarity is morally good because it's like, well, it's actually a reaction. It's a response to a really bad world. Like, wouldn't it be better if we just didn't need to do that? <laughs> mm. um, and so that was sort of the the impetus for the fourth chapter was to say, like, let's think differently about solidarity as a kind, a way of organizing ourselves in circumstances where maybe we really wish we rather didn't have a need to do so. I agree. I I think that, as you said, uh, chapter three is a key chapter, but chapter four, in the process of of that, you you make note of of so many things, (laughs) including the, right, the the research gap, right, in, in solidarity study, uh, the Enlightenment's conception, conceptual vision, I should say, of society, which is interesting in itself. Montaigne's reference to Kant in 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 our unsocial sociability, and and you also work in uh, Nancy Fraser and dual systems theory. Uh, you make an interesting point as well about Sally Schultz's review essay about solidarity, and I realize we can't talk about everything. Still, interested readers, I think, will will eat this chapter up, chapter four, since there's a lot there. Can can you do a better job here than your host seems to be doing at the moment uh, to to help focus listeners on what's really key and how it fits into your larger thesis of a critical social theory of solidarity? Yeah, this chapter is really expansive and it was very much like a labor of love. So Hmm. this chapter tries to go back and say, what have we missed? Where has historically political thought gone wrong when it comes to solidarity such that, in fact, no one has taken it as central. No one has taken unionization as central to a question of solidarity. What what got left out? And so what I try to do is recover this original social theory in political thought, in sort of enlightenment political thought, and say, well, that's what we lost. (laughs) We, at some point, stopped paying attention to the fact that a political system isn't just something like a plug-and-play element of the world. It's based on a society, and those societies are composed of human beings. And so once I started to sort of backtrack and say, well, what is solidarity doing for us? It's like, oh, it's a way of making a society hang together. It's a way of building a society for ourselves. And it turns out the reason no one has been paying attention to it 
is because political thought doesn't care about social theory much anymore. <laughs> and so that's really, I would say, the, the main sort of push behind this chapter is to say, let's go back and rebuild political thought with social theories attached to them like we used to. That seems like the Frankfurt School uh, writ large. Yeah, definitely. And so this is sort of why I think of it as a critical social theory of solidarity, because I am trying to bring out, I think, this methodological commitment to doing theory, but also never taking my eye off the fact that it's not just a theory, it's about like actual people. It's about our real lives. And it's about making our real lives more free than they otherwise would have been. Nice. There's all sorts of things, I suppose, that could be said about why it is uh, in in the States that if you want to have health care, your biggest or your best possibility of getting it is to actually work for a corporation if you don't work for the federal government, which... Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't seem quite right in terms of getting back to the dignity of the individual and, and the kind of the haunteth concept. Right. That, or I, I may be taking that a bit far, but. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I this is part of why I call the chapter burdened action, because it does seem like actually this is already a compromise. <laughs> um I, and and one of the ways that I've been thinking about it lately is through um, corporations that now have come out and said, like, we'll pay for employees travel if they need to leave the state to get an abortion. Right. That's already just like a monumental compromise of what a good world would be like for people such that we have to look at sort of the cost benefit analysis of a corporation that it's cheaper to pay for an employee to get an abortion than to pay for them to have a child. Um, yeah certainly the outcome gets us something beneficial, which is people who need abortions have easier access to them in states where they're illegal. Um, but the compromise there, I think for me, is that it's better that people's lives are better in that way. And that's not a position that I think is in an ideal world one I would hold. I wouldn't say, oh, I love that corporations are the last harbinger of abortion rights in some places. Mm. <laughs> um, like, that's actually really bad and I don't like it. And I think Hanit shies away from actually looking at the world and saying, well, we're already embedded in a world that's really deeply bad and damaging for us. And saying, okay, well, how can we make it less that way? And so unionization seems to me already to be compromised. It's because it's burdened in this way where it's like, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need to be doing this. Yeah, good point. Well, you you open your last chapter, which is titled A More Perfect Union, The Ends of Conflict, by noting there are at least two questions uh, that you hadn't addressed. And, and the first one is, what happens after a conflict ends? And the second, what is the goal of conflict and how ought we understand its normative status? As a starting place, can you share some of how you answered those questions, including your points about uh, Charles Mill's framework and the problematic notion that ideal democratic theory is a, a form of ideology? And, and you've been kind of working around the edges of that <laughs> already. <laughs> yeah, I have. Right. So I think that um, we've built up to this place really well, because one of the things that I think gets muddled in democratic theory is what is democracy for? What are we trying to do with it? Why do we need it? What makes it good? And I think the way that I choose to look at those questions is through the idea of conflict. So problematically, I think a lot of radical democratic thought can't think about what happens when conflict ends because conflict is the engine of democracy. And I worried a lot about painting myself into this corner where I had to sort of fetishize fighting with each other. And my way of getting out of this kind of painted corner was to say, much like unionization, in an ideal world, we just wouldn't need democracy. This is a, a, like a political form for us because we don't live in an ideal world. 
like it doesn't seem to me that these questions are ones that um, a perfectly organized society where everyone's needs are met in the right kinds of ways doesn't have the kinds of questions that need to be answered through democracy. To the extent that it does, there's something defective about that world, right? And so I wanted to think about what are we doing when we do democratic theory, radical democratic theory, and we think about how conflict ends and what we're trying to do by having it. And so first, I argue, well, there are always going to be more conflicts. When conflicts end, when groups meet their goals, new challenges get posed through that. And so we enter into this kind of iterative process where, okay, we have sort of gotten a goal met and now we've achieved it. New problems will open up from the attainment of the goal. So it, it sort of unflinchingly looks at a world and says, you know, whatever gains have been made can be lost and whatever gains have been made can open up the possibility of getting more gains for us. So the goal of conflict then seems to be to help us agitate, to win a more flourishing society, to win a less unfree way of being in the world. That doesn't mean all conflict is good, right? So we talked already about this distinction between realistic and unrealistic conflict. And this is really where that comes in to cut the difference and say, we should start to get worried when we find ourselves engaging in conflict that is mostly about psychological satisfaction. Yeah. And um, your your book's conclusion, you, you bring this all home. I, I feel like you really uh, you finalize things and synthesize your line of reasoning in relation to your sources. You bring the readers back to Pinsky and, and Honnett and the Frankfurt School, among others. And you really stake out the boundaries, I feel, uh, of your democratic theory. But what's most important, though, uh, for listeners to take away, given our format and how you presented uh, your book's key ideas today? I think the one thing that I I think reader or, uh, listeners could really take away is this central idea that conflict isn't something that we should always be trying to eliminate, that the goal of politics isn't necessarily just getting rid of conflict and coming to an agreement. That actually those conflicts, when we have these kinds of disagreements, they can better us, they can better our engagements with each other and our organizations. And in fact, they can change the whole world. That's what solidarity groups are trying to do when they agitate conflicts. They're trying to change the whole world. And that, when you think about it, is actually really inspiring and kind of awe-inducing. But when you put it that way, it also makes it clear that when we try to eliminate conflict, one of the things we might be doing is trying to eliminate the possibility for solidarity organizations to bring about better ways of living for us. And so we should really be concerned about that and not move too quickly to dismiss conflict just as you know, more bickering or infighting or something like that. Yeah, you you sound like you're channeling um, Mofa a bit there, uh, mm -hmm. where she says in a democratic polity, uh, conflicts and confrontations, far from being a sign of imperfection, uh, really indicate that democracy is alive and well and inhabited by by pluralism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this I, I sort of begin the book with that framework. And I, and I think that ultimately she's right about it. Your book's thesis and uh, analysis really is uh, engaging and relevant. I think that's the really important point to make. And uh, if you'll just indulge us a, a bit more here uh, today, can I ask you, um, could, could you read the first paragraph aloud from the last page of your book's conclusion? Absolutely. So here's what it writes. It is for this reason that I argue that solidarity is a way to build society in its wreckage. Lacking connection to formal political institutions and the basics of a dignified life, people seek to rebuild what was once thought to have been secured by the democratic welfare state. This, in part, can also explain why so many merely cultural movements have extended basis of social solidarity. They are literally attempts at building a society in which heterogeneity isn't expelled or exterminated. 
It's here that we can really see why Honnett characterizes solidarity as that which provides the basis for self-esteem in being respected by others in one's particularity as part of the social whole. Solidarity organizations allow us to have, on a micro level, what it is that a good society could provide for us. Access to democratic life, the non-exclusion of difference, and the sharing of goals, faiths, and values. Thanks so much, Nat. It means a lot. Appreciate all the time and effort here sharing and really helping us understand your democratic theory and its key elements. As for the present, what are you working on these days? Right now, I'm working on a couple of things. I'm um, writing an essay on political epistemology and especially the idea of paranoia, how paranoia can drive sort of social formations. And I'm working on a book proposal investigating the idea of sex, gender, and sexuality in the early Frankfurt School. Sounds good. And and finally, uh, Nat, hey, your research draws on many sources across a number of disciplines. Do, do you have a few uh, book recommendations for listeners interested in complementing your work on solidarity, conflict, and democratic theory? Absolutely. So I would really recommend, I liked Sally Schultz's Political Solidarity, I think is a great book. Um, Avery Kohler's wrote a book called A Moral Theory of Solidarity, um, which I thought was really good if you're interested in coming to a um, a moral theory of what solidarity is. And um, there was a compilation that I used for the fourth chapter on unionization called Out at Work uh, about questions of sexuality and labor organizing. And the essays are really fantastic. Thanks so much for that. Well, once again, let me just say it's worth people's time. Solidarity and Conflict, a Democratic Theory, published in 2020 by Stanford University Press. Thanks again, Nat. Oh, thank you so much for having me.